If you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn with me to Matthew chapter 26. Matthew 26. We had the privilege on Sunday to look at Matthew 21 and see the triumphal entry of our Savior. That he was king being presented to Israel, but not the kind of king that they thought he was, that they wanted him to be. A year ago on Good Friday, we went with Jesus into the Garden of Gethsemane. We walked with him. We saw his agony. We beheld his glorious submission to the will of the Father. We walked away broken over our sin, seeing what it was that caused our Savior to stagger in the garden. This evening, I want us to just follow to the next stage After his betrayal in the garden and his arrest in Gethsemane, Jesus would be tried six times. And you have to put that word trial in quotes. They weren't all. sent him to Herod Antipas, and he was put on trial before Herod Antipas, and Herod sent him back to Pilate, and he was put on trial before Pilate one last time. A total of six trials before Jesus was sentenced to die the death of a common criminal. For our time this evening, what I want to do is I want to look at Jesus standing before these judges. Primarily, I want to look at Caiaphas and Pilate. I want to follow our Savior into the praetorium and hear the words of Pilate and see Jesus' response. I don't want us to remain unaffected. And so I want to ask the Lord's blessing on our time before we dive into his word and plead with him to work in us fresh affections for Jesus. That we would love him more because of our time together tonight as we see him standing before the judge. Father, we do ask that you would be gracious to us this evening. This is Good Friday. This is the best of all Fridays. But it was only good for us because it was not good for Jesus. And I pray that as we walk with him into these trials, as we stand with him and observe him before these judges, that there would be a work in our hearts that we would never be the same. We want to stand in the presence of our Savior and see what he did for us and see why he did that for us. So, Father, I pray that you, by your grace, would show us Christ. Your Spirit would do what he loves to do. Holy Spirit, open our eyes to see Jesus. And tonight to be undone by his glory on display. We pray in the name of our Savior. Amen. First, Jesus stood before Caiaphas. That's the first individual that I want us to look at. Jesus stood before Annas, before Caiaphas, but it was just a placeholder of a trial uh, while they were waiting for the whole Sanhedrin to gather. And then when the Sanhedrin was gathered together, Caiaphas took over. Verse 57, Matthew chapter 26, verse 57. Those who had seized Jesus led him away to Caiaphas, the high priest, where the scribes and the elders were gathered together. This is the council or the Sanhedrin. This is the Supreme Court in Israel. Peter was following him at a distance as far as the courtyard of the high priest. He entered in and he sat down with the officers to see the outcome. So we're going to sit with Peter to watch the outcome. We're going to be ushered into the home, into where Caiaphas is going to be speaking to Jesus. Verse 59 tells us the purpose of this. The chief priests 
And the whole council, that's the Sanhedrin, they kept trying to obtain false testimony against Jesus so that they might put him to death. The goal is clear. We don't want a fair trial. We want to kill Jesus. So we want to obtain false witnesses. We want to do whatever is necessary to kill this man. By the way, they are going to do so many different illegal things this evening. They're going to obtain false witnesses. They are going to hold the trial in a wrong place, which was a private home to begin with, rather than the temple precincts. They're going to hold the trial at night. It was supposed to be done during the day so that uh, defense witnesses could come and support the accused. There were no defense witnesses. And if there were no defense witnesses at all, the case would be put on hold. There is no careful warning of the witnesses that do speak concerning the results of perjury. Attempts were made to force Jesus to bear witness against himself by the high priest. That's illegal. That was not allowed. That's why we have a Fifth Amendment in our Constitution, so that you do not have to incriminate yourself. Jesus was not released when the witnesses disagreed with one another, which is what you were supposed to do. Release the man. Obviously, there's not enough witnesses to corroborate against this individual. And then execution would be carried out immediately without allowing time to find witnesses in support of the accused. This was illegal on every level. But they don't find any testimony. Verse 60. Even though many false witnesses come forward, nobody can speak coherently to address Jesus with some evil that he's done worthy of death. Later on, two come forward most likely paid off to speak these words. Verse 61, this man stated, I'm able to destroy the temple of God and rebuild it in three days. That's not what Jesus had said. Jesus had said, you're going to destroy this temple. And in three days, it will be rebuilt without hands. The high priest stood up and said to him, Caiaphas speaks to him directly. Do you not answer? What is it that these men are testifying against you? But Jesus keeps Silent. This whole thing is unfair, unjust, and Jesus knows that, and he could have spoken out against it. He could have said, these were my actual words. You misheard me. You're misquoting me. That's not what I said. He could easily have corrected his accusers, but he remains silent. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 23, while he was being reviled, he did not revile back. He kept entrusting himself to God who judges righteously. He doesn't utter a word. And while he is remaining silent, he is winning this entire trial. Caiaphas knows that. And that's why after it says in verse 63, Jesus kept silent. Caiaphas says, enough. I can just see him standing up saying, enough. Nobody's getting the job done, so I'll do it myself. And so he speaks directly to Jesus and he says, I adjure you, I place you under oath. How ironic that the one who is truth incarnate is being told to take an oath as if it's possible for him to tell anything but the truth. Here in Matthew's gospel, he asks him two questions. Are you the Christ, the son of the living God? In Luke, it splits out those questions. In the gospel of Luke, Caiaphas is going to say to Jesus, tell us plainly, are you the Christ? Christ, that's the Greek word for the Hebrew word Messiah. That's the anointed one, the king. Are you the king? And Jesus remains silent. He does not answer. And the reason why he doesn't answer is because he knows what Caiaphas is trying to do. Caiaphas just wants to take some statement that Jesus has made to Pilate. Caiaphas wants to kill Jesus, but the Sanhedrin can't kill Jesus. The Sanhedrin are not allowed by Roman rule to execute anyone. That's not going to be allowed. Now, they did it anyway. They would stone people to death. They would stone Stephen to death. They would live by mob rule sometimes, but they were not allowed to do that. And because this had to be some sort of airtight contained trial and execution because they know that Jesus is loved by the masses, they have to get Rome to be terrified of this individual. And so the way to do that is to say, this man claims to be king. He claims to be Caesar. He claims to be a seditionist. And Jesus isn't a seditionist. He's not claiming to be a political ruler. He's not claiming to try to fight against Rome. And so when Caiaphas says, just tell us plainly, are you the Christ? We, we need a confession that you claim to be a king and we can take that to Rome. 
Jesus doesn't answer him. That's not all I've said that I am. I'm not just a king, I am God. And so in Luke, Caiaphas says, fine, I'll ask you plainly, are you the Christ, the son of the living God? And that's when Jesus says, yes, that's who I am. That's who I am. This is exactly the claim that Jesus had been making his entire ministry. He claimed to be God as he forgave people of their sins. Even the demons knew this. They said, you are the son of God. We know who you are. But here, weak, dejected, all alone with no one, not one single witness standing to defend him. He says explicitly, I am the Messiah, the son of God. Verse 64, you have said it yourself. You said it yourself. That's who I am. Nevertheless, listen to this. I tell you, Hereafter, you will see the son of man sitting at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. That is Jesus quoting two different passages from the Old Testament, Daniel chapter seven, which we looked at in detail and Psalm 110. What he's saying in effect is, yes, I am the Messiah. I am God, very God. And ultimately this is how this is gonna end. You are judging me now. I'm going to die, but I'm gonna come back and I'm gonna judge you. And you're not gonna make it, Caiaphas. On the last day, you're going to see me coming back. I'm going to turn the tables on you. You're going to be tried and your mouth is going to be shut as I righteously judge you. But because I'm staying silent now and allowing you to do whatever you want to me, because I'm staying silent and not defending myself, I am winning the right to be your judge eternally. Caiaphas is very unhappy with this. Verse 65 the high priest tore his robes and said, he's blasphemed. What further need do we have of witnesses? You've now heard the blasphemy. What do you think? And they all answered, he deserves death. And they spat in his face and they beat him with their fists and slapped him. And they said, prophesy to us, you Christ. Who's the one who hit you? The irony is, as they say, prophesy to us, They are fulfilling prophecy. Isaiah chapter 50 verse 6 says this is exactly how this would happen. Charles Spurgeon says it this way. There are two or three thoughts that come to my mind when I think that these wicked men actually did spit in Jesus's face. In that face, which is the light of heaven, the joy of the angels, the bliss of the saints, the very brightness of the father's glory. This spitting shows us first how far sin will go. If we want proof of the depravity of the heart of man, I will not point you to the stews of Sodom and Gomorrah. I I won't take you to the places where blood is shed in the streams by wretches like Herod and men of that sort. No, the clearest proof that man is utterly fallen and that the natural heart is enmity against God is seen in the fact that they did spit in Christ's face. They falsely accused him, they condemned him, and they led him out as a common criminal to hang him up as a felon that he would die on the cross. My friends, do you not realize that every time that we sin, we are spitting in the face of Jesus? Spurgeon continues, oh, my brothers, let us hate sin. Oh, my sisters, let us loathe sin, not only because it pierced those blessed hands and feet of our dear Redeemer, but because it dared even to spit in his face. I look at this scene and I just think, why are they doing this? Why are they mocking this innocent man who has done nothing wrong? There's a number of reasons to that, but one of the reasons is they're mocking him for his claims. They cannot stand the size of these claims. We talked about this on Sunday. These kinds of claims force us into an all or nothing decision. If Jesus were simply to say, I'm a preacher that's showing you the way to God, they would have said, that's fine. But when Jesus says, I am God, you can't take or leave that. You you have to, you have to understand, is this something I'm going to completely give myself to? Or is this something that I'm going to completely reject? You can't just simply say, that's nice. That's good for you. No, you either crown him or you kill him. Those are your only options. 
And since they don't want to submit to him, they're going to kill him. I wonder how that feels in your own heart. Do you love submitting to Jesus? Do you love giving your will over to Christ? Augustine talked about a time when he was a young man and he would break into a pear orchard and he would steal pears. And he said, I wanted to know why I would do that. Before I came to Christ, why would I steal pears? And he specifically said, here's the conundrum. I would steal pears and I didn't know why because I don't even like pears and I wasn't even hungry. I was just going into somebody else's land and stealing pears. Why was I doing that? And he said very clearly, because I was told I wasn't allowed to do it. If it's forbidden, I'm going to kick against it. At the core of every human heart is something that says through clenched teeth, no one tells me how to live. We're just like Caiaphas. And yet, while they're attempting to preserve their own autonomy, Jesus is gladly giving his away. While they're protecting their power, Jesus is giving his up. And while Jesus appeared most out of control in this trial, it's exactly when he was most in command. Jesus before Caiaphas on display, standing, speaking, majestic glory that is absolutely confounding to our senses. Once they get the blasphemous claim that they wanted and they also hear that he is Messiah, he claims to be king, they know we can take that to Pilate. We can take that to Rome because Rome does not want anyone to claim to be a king over Caesar. So second, let's look at Pilate. Matthew chapter 27, verse 11. Jesus stands before the governor. This is Pilate, the governor, Pontius Pilate. Pilate is mentioned in all four of the Gospels. These trials uh, before Pilate are mentioned in all four of the Gospels. It's in the Apostles' Creed that Jesus suffered under Pontius Pilate. Why is he so important? He's just a governor. He's the fifth governor, fifth Roman governor over Judea. He held office for 11 years from AD 26 to 37, the longest tenure of any who had lived uh, before him up to that time. He had a rough bout at the beginning of his reign in Judea. He had angered a lot of the Jews by placing images of Caesar in the temple. He had spilled the blood of Jews when they fought against him. And he was afraid that Caesar was hearing about all these things and was going to take his power away. And right before what we're about to read, he had learned that his best friend, a man by the name of Sejanus, who lived back in Rome, had been conspiring against the Caesar, who at the time was Tiberius, and he was conspiring to assassinate him. That conspiracy was found out, and Sejanus was killed. And Tiberius said, I'm going to execute Sejanus, his whole family, all of his property is going to be burned, all of his livestock killed, and I will find out every single friend that he has and kill them all, because they were all probably conspiring against me. And so Pilate knew that. Pilate knew that there was a conspiracy he was not involved in, but he knew that Tiberius was going to try and come after him. And so he wanted to lay low and let nothing bad happen. Let's not make waves. So they take Jesus to Pilate. John tells us that when the Sanhedrin shows up at Pilate's uh, house, at his palace, at where the praetorium was, they don't even go in. They don't go in because they're Jews. He's a Gentile. They don't want to defile themselves by walking into Gentile territory, the hypocrisy of sin so clearly on display. Pilate's going to ask three main questions. We don't have time to go through all of it, but Pilate's going to ask three main questions of Jesus. His first is in verse 11. Are you the king of the Jews? That's the first question that Pilate's going to ask. Are you the king? That's the charge that they brought to me that you claim to be Messiah, you claim to be king. Are you a king? You sure don't look like a king. You sure don't act like a king. Are you a king? Now, Pilate doesn't care at all about the theological nature of that question. You and I hear ringing in our ears, he's the king of kings and the Lord of lords over all the world. That's not what Pilate's asking. He's asking, are you a political leader? Are you trying to take power from Rome? And Jesus' answer is stunning. 
He simply says, you say, you said it. It's, it's one of the most majestic things that Jesus ever said. There's ambiguity to what he's saying. In front of the Jews, Jesus was very clear. Yes, I am the Messiah. I am the son of God and I'm coming back and I'm going to judge you. Super clear. But before Pilate, he goes, that's what you're saying. It's so beautiful. Why? Why does he give this ambiguous answer? Because Jesus knows what Pilate's asking. And so he says, I'm not a political leader the way that you think I am. But I am a king. So I can't just say no. I have to say yes, but no, but yes. He's not giving a denial. He's not giving an affirmation. He's giving a denial and an affirmation at the exact same time. I love this. And brothers and sisters, we have to sit in the tension of this reality. This is what Paul tells Timothy to do in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 13. Study Christ who made the good confession before Pontius Pilate. Look at the beauty of this tension. This is where I see so many believers falling off of one side or the other in this specific issue. So many Christians today are falling off the cliff to one side or the other. This is the beauty of our savior as king. If you ask Buddha, are you a political leader? What's his answer going to be? Not at all. If you ask Muhammad, are you a political leader? What's his answer going to be? Absolutely. You ask Jesus and he's going to say, you're saying it. Because he's not only one or only the other. Even in his day, he had this experience. You remember the zealots, they believe Jesus is king and we're going to take the kingdom here in this life. We're going to kill the Romans and we're going to establish our kingdom. They fell off to one side of the cliff. The Essenes, that was another Jewish group, they fell off to the other side of the cliff. You know what? He's not a political ruler at all. So we're going we're gonna to back off. We're going to just hide out in the caves of Qumran. We're, we're not getting involved in anything at all. And I see believers in today's day and age going to both of those extremes. Brothers and sisters, listen to Jesus's ambiguous answer. Don't withdraw but don't think that it's your job to make this country a Christian country. Your king has much better plans than that. And he's going to die to secure them. So this beautiful, ambiguous answer. And Pilate knows it. Pilate sees it. Pilate knows that he's innocent. Second question that he's going to ask is in verse 13. Do you not hear how many things they testify against you? What he's asking is, why aren't you fighting back? Are you a king? Jesus' answer is yes and no. Not the kind of king you think, but I am a king. Second question is, why aren't you fighting back? Why aren't you doing anything about this? They're going to kill you. Why don't you protect yourself? And Jesus is going to make no reply. Verse 14, he did not answer him with regard to even a single charge. So the governor was quite amazed. That's a positive word. He was amazed. He was filled with wonder and awe. This is so beautiful. Jesus is just standing there so peaceful throughout this entire conversation. Look at the crowds outside the palace, frantic. Jesus doesn't even feel the need to talk. The enemies of Jesus are doing everything in their power to fight and Jesus is taking all of his power and just laying it down. Think about revolutions are one. You have to fight against the power that's in existence and overcome it. Jesus is going to begin an entire revolution by laying aside his own power and being destroyed by the power of another. That's what Pilate sees. That's why he's amazed. And that's why he's going to say five times explicitly in the narrative, he's going to say, this man is innocent. He's innocent. He's done nothing wrong. He's done absolutely nothing wrong. Five distinct times Pilate says that Jesus is innocent. Four times he's going to attempt to deliver Jesus, to free him. The first time is when he sends him to Herod Antipas. Uh, he hears that he's a Galilean. He says, that's Herod's jurisdiction. Send him to Herod. Let him try it. But Herod, as a Jewish authority, will have no authority to execute him. So that's what I think of this man. 
Fine, put him in jail, but there's nothing that he's done worthy of execution. The second attempt is here in the Gospel of Matthew. He's going to attempt to release him by freeing him over and against the criminal Barabbas. This is in verse 15. At the feast, the feast of Passover, the governor was accustomed to release for the people any one prisoner that they wanted. This is a a merciful gesture that uh, Pontius Pilate decided to do so that he could say, hey, you're celebrating this feast that I don't care anything about because I'm not Jewish. You're celebrating this feast uh, about deliverance from your political oppressor, Egypt, and how God delivered you. And guess what? I'm going to be a savior to as, as well, and I'm going to deliver somebody of your choosing. I'm going to give you somebody back. Look through the jail cell rolls. Look through everything that's going on. Find the person that you want, uh, and by majority vote, take the, the prisoner. You can have him. Pilate says, you know what, I'm going to use that to my advantage. Notice what Pilate does. Pilate doesn't say, hey, do you want any prisoner released? He says, I'll give you one other option. I'm going to pick this time. You don't get the choice. And I think he's setting this up so that Jesus would be the obvious candidate to be released. He picks Barabbas, a murderer, a terrible individual, and people would be in that crowd saying, oh, I wish he'd picked somebody other than Barabbas. I think he's doing that on purpose. I think that Pilate is shocked when they say, you know what, free Barabbas and kill Jesus. Pilate knew what was going on. Verse 16, at that time they were holding this notorious prisoner, one called Barabbas. So when the people gathered together, Pilate said to them, who do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who's called the Christ? Because he knew that because of envy, they had handed him over. He knew that this man has done nothing wrong. And so I'm going to try and fight to get him to be released. So he has this notorious prisoner called Barabbas. That's his last name, Bar-Abba, Bar, son of Abba, the father, son of the father. His first name is actually Jesus. So you've got Jesus, Barabbas, Jesus, son of the father. And then you've got Jesus, the Messiah, the, the son of the true father. And he says, which Jesus do you want? They wanted a different Jesus. They wanted a Jesus that they could control. They wanted a Jesus who wouldn't make them feel guilty. Man, look at this notorious prisoner. I'm way better than he is. Let's pick him. They wanted a Jesus like them. And for 2,000 years, the world has been crying out for a different Jesus. Interesting to note in Luke's gospel, when Pilate says, who do you want? They say, give us Barabbas, release him. And then he says, what do you want me to do with Jesus? And they say, away with this man. They don't even say his name. Away with this man. We don't want anything to do with this individual. Pilate attempts, uh, attempt number three, to release Jesus by having him scourged, flogged, beaten so severely that hopefully that might satisfy the crowd and placate their bloodthirst. But no, it does not. Finally, his last attempt, he says, hey, behold, here's your king. You guys really think this guy's a threat? Because I don't think he's a threat. This broken man can do you no harm. But they say we want him dead. That's his third question in verse 22. Pilate said to them, what will I do with Jesus who is called the Christ? What am I going to do with him? Should I release him? They say, no, crucify him. Crucify him. He says, what has this man done wrong? What evil has he done? You can see it in verse 23. Why? What evil has he done? But they kept shouting all the more. They don't even have an answer because there is no answer. He's done no evil. They just shout, crucify him, crucify him. Luke tells us in Luke 23, 23, that their voices prevailed and, and Pilate, terrified of the peer pressure that they were imposing upon him, said, you know what? I wash my hands. You do what you will with him. You do what you will. It's a terrifying scene in Pilate's palace. One hymn writer wrote a hymn called, I See the Crowd in Pilate's Hall. And I want to read this hymn to you because where would you identify yourself in this scene in Pilate's palace? The hymn writer says this, I I see the crowd in Pilate's Hall, their furious cries I hear. Their shouts of crucify, appall, their curses fill my ear. And of that shouting multitude, I feel that I am one. 
And in that din of voices rude, I recognize my own. I see the scourgers rend the flesh of God's beloved son. And as they smite, I feel afresh that I of them am one. Around the cross, that throng I see that mock the sufferers groan. Yet still my voice, it seems to be as if I mocked alone. Twas I that shed that sacred blood. I nailed him to the tree. I crucified the Christ of God. I joined the mockery. Yet not the less that blood avails to cleanse me from my sin. And not the less that cross prevails to give me peace within. Martin Luther used to say that every single one of us walks around in life with Christ's nails in our pockets. Those nails that drove his hands and his feet to that piece of wood. We did that to him. We did that to him. So Jesus is condemned to die 6 a.m. in the morning. He is condemned to be crucified. And from 6 a.m. to 9 a.m. in the morning, he is, on Friday morning, he is led out, he is beaten, he is mocked, he is led out to be crucified. And at 9 a.m., he is crucified. Verse 42, drop down to verse 42. Listen to their mocking at the foot of the cross. They said, he saved others. He cannot save himself. He is the king of Israel. Let him now come down from the cross. We'll believe him. If he trusts in God, let God rescue him now. If he delights in him, he said, I am the son of God. Look at the irony of what they're saying. They're mocking him saying, this isn't the way God would save the world. You're claiming to be the savior of the world and this isn't the way he would do it. If you were truly one of God's precious people, he wouldn't let this happen to you, but that's exactly what was happening. How often we mock God in the exact same way. God, there's no way you could be working in this the way that you claim to be working. And yet in that exact moment, God is doing this miraculous work. Jesus is crucified from 9 a.m. to noon. It is bright. There is talking. There are mockers mocking him. He is speaking, Father, forgive them. They do not know what they're doing. He's speaking, Mother, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. He's speaking, to the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. But then something changes at noon. And from noon to 3 p.m., there's three hours, not of light, the brightest moment during the day, but of absolute darkness. Why is that? Jesus has stood before the highest of all Jewish judges in the land of Israel, Caiaphas. He has stood before the highest Gentile judge in the land of Israel, Pontius Pilate. But he has one last judge to face. And it is this judge that he's terrified of. His third judge is God the Father. Darkness rolls into the land. This is a supernatural darkness. People try to explain it away naturalistically. They say, well, maybe there's an eclipse. It couldn't have been an eclipse because it's Passover. That means that there's a full moon. There's no way that this would have happened. It's a supernatural event. Darkness is flooding the land as a sign of judgment, exactly the same way that it did thousands of years earlier when God sent 10 plagues into Egypt. And one of those plagues, the second to last plague, is a plague of darkness through the land, a symbol of God's judgment. And then what came right after darkness? It was death. That's why Jesus is terrified. That's why he was terrified in the garden that we looked at last year. That's why he's terrified now because he knows this darkness is God's judgment against sin. Verse 46, because of that darkness and the judgment God is placing upon Jesus, Jesus cries out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Under the judgment of Caiaphas, he stands silent and determined and then speaks the truth. Under the judgment of Pontius Pilate, he speaks so ambiguously, so helpfully. John's gospel records so much love that Jesus has for Pilate. It is a glorious thing. He is not afraid. He is not scared. He's not nervous. But before this judge, 
he screams. He didn't scream before Pilate. He didn't scream before Caiaphas. He screamed before his father. And his scream is so specific. He does not say, my friends, my friends, why have you forsaken me? Even though they had deserted him, they had left him. He's not screaming, my hands, my feet, even though they are being pinned to a piece of wood. The only thing that he cares about in this moment is the judgment that the Father is giving against our sin that's been placed on him. He doesn't say a thing about the pain of crucifixion. It's all about the judgment being given. Think about the agony of this moment. Just, I want to meditate on this judgment. Think about the agony of this. Jesus loves his father. And now his Abba is his judge. There's a break in that relationship. There's a loss of love in this relationship. Something is happening in this moment. Think about the agony of this. If if one of you came up to me after the service today and said, you know what? I'm done with you. I don't want to have anything to do with you anymore. I'm never talking to you again. Don't try to contact me. I don't like you. I would say, I am so sorry. I'd love to know what what happened. What did I do? I would try to figure out if we can reconcile. And if we couldn't, there would be tears. There would be sadness. But life would go on. If my wife came up to me after the service and said, you know what, I'm done with you. I can't stand you. I can't be around you. I'm done with you. Would that be very different than if one of my friends said, you know what, I've had enough, I'm done? That loss would be unbelievable. Now think about what Jesus had to experience on the cross. This wasn't a friend. This wasn't a spouse. This was a connection with God, very God, that he has had for all of eternity. Think of the bond that Jesus had. The longer the love, the deeper the love, the more painful the loss of that love. There's no torment like the loss of love and the greatest love in the universe is being lost here. No one has ever suffered like Jesus because no one has ever loved the Father and obeyed the Father like Jesus. No one has ever been so intimate with the Father like Jesus And so no one has felt the agony that Jesus is experiencing. This is why R.C. Sproul says, quote, when Jesus took the curse upon himself, he so identified with our sin that he became a curse. At the moment that Christ took upon himself the sin of the world, he became the most grotesque, most obscene mass of sin in the history of the world. I've heard many sermons about the physical pain of death by crucifixion. I've heard graphic descriptions of the nails and the thorns. Surely the physical agony of the crucifixion was a ghastly thing. But there were thousands who died on crosses and may have had more painful deaths than that of Christ. But only one person has ever received the full measure of the curse of God on a cross. On the cross, Jesus was in the reality of hell. He became a curse for us so that we someday will be able to see the face of God. So the light of his countenance could fall upon us. God had to turn his countenance away from his son. It is no wonder that Christ screamed. R.C. Sproul says he experienced hell on the cross. And he absolutely did because we know Jesus did not go to hell after he died. He told the thief on the cross, today you'll be with me in paradise. We're going straight to paradise. So the hell that he would pay for was not after he died, but while he was dying. Think of how staggeringly awful this is. Anyone who goes to hell hates God. It's an awful experience. 
It's absolutely just torment and torture. It's awful. It's punishment forever. But they hate God. They don't love him. They don't obey him. They go to hell hating God and they exist in hell hating God. Only Jesus experienced hell while loving God. No one in hell says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? They, they point their fist at him and shake their fist in anger at him. You're not my God. You're not my king. You're not my friend. You're not my savior. And I hate you. Jesus experienced such agony because while experiencing hell, while experiencing hell, not just for me and for you, but for every single person who would ever believe in him, billions of people, He's experiencing their punishment, but he's experiencing as one who still loves and delights in the Father. No one ever experienced hell this way. No one ever will. Only Jesus is. He's experiencing wrath while at the same time pleading and crying out, God, I want you. Why have you forsaken me? When you suffer, you and I, when we suffer, we say, God, why? Christianity is the only religion that says that Jesus, the Son of God, came to earth as a human to suffer in our place and cry out, why? Our God has cried out the same cries that we cry. When you suffer and you ask God why, looking at the cross won't tell you the reason for it, won't tell you the reason for your suffering. But it will tell you the reason, but it will tell you the reason it isn't. It doesn't love you. It, it cannot be that he doesn't have a plan for you. It, it cannot be that he doesn't care. Why? Because, why? because Jesus went through, because Jesus went through, experiencing our judgments for us. In the only darkness, the only darkness that ever had the potential to destroy us, Jesus was just. He was forsaken. He stood before Caiaphas and spoke words of truth. He stood before Pilate and said, I am a king, not the king that you are thinking of, but I am a king. My kingdom's not of this world. And then he stood before the Father. And he said, Father, let their punishment fall on me so that your love falls on them unendingly. Jesus stood before Caiaphas. He stood before Pilate. And he stood before the Father. But there's one last judge that we need to contemplate. There's one last judge. This time Jesus isn't standing before him. You and I are. We stand before our, our king. We all stand before God. Just as Pilate said, which Jesus do you want? So too, right now, God the Father, because of his kindness, through his word, he is saying, which king do you want? Do you want to be king? Or will you die to yourself and submit to Jesus as king? We only have two options. Either we can stand before the judge of the universe, holding on to our good works, our attempts at saving ourselves, our good efforts, our works of love. And we would stand before God and say, God, is this good enough? Will you let me off the hook because of the things that I attempted? I, I try to be a good person. But if you have not clung to Jesus alone for salvation, God the Father will, will tell you those works, as good as they might be in your mind, it's not perfection and you need to be perfect to be in heaven. And since you are not perfect and you have tried on your own to find your own way without any desperate plea that you need help, there is no salvation for you. And the judgment that Jesus bore on the cross, you will now bear for all of eternity. If you have not submitted to Jesus as Lord, you are still facing this judge. Spurgeon says, judge yourselves in this matter. If you've ever denied Christ's deity, if you've ever assailed his atoning sacrifice, it might be said of you that you are spitting in his face now. Further, this evil is done 
when men prefer their own righteousness to the righteousness of Christ. There are some who say, we don't need pardon. We don't want to be justified by faith in Christ. We're good enough already. We're working for our own salvation. We mean to save ourselves. And then he says this, oh, sirs, if you could save yourself, why did Jesus bleed upon the cross? It was superfluous indeed that the Son of God should die in human form if there be a possibility of salvation by your own merits. And if you prefer your merits to his, it must be said of you now that you fit in his face. Do you prefer your merits, your goodness, your your kindness, your acts of love, your, your uh, non-acts of bad things. Do you prefer that over clinging to Jesus and saying, Jesus, I need all of your perfection because I'm not good enough. None of us likes to say those words. I'm not good enough. But only those people will see Christ hanging on the cross as good news. What more could be, what could be more heartbreaking to God than for us to look at Jesus murdered on the cross, slain in our place, and us to think, you know what, that's okay, but I want something more. No, just come to Jesus. It doesn't matter what you've done. It truly doesn't matter what you've done. There is mercy for you at the cross. Jesus didn't forsake you at the cross. Even while he was being forsaken, he didn't forsake you at the cross. If he wouldn't forsake you at the cross, if he would continue to bear under the wrath of God against our sin, if he would say, I'm not going to give up, I'm not going to quit, I'm going to bear all of it. If he's not going to forsake you despite everything that God the Father would throw at him at the cross, what makes you think that he's going to forsake you because of something that you've thrown at him? Look to Jesus now. Look to the one who bled and died for you. Spurgeon says, just words that I absolutely feel. I fear I have not been able to make you think of the blood of Christ. I beseech you then, just for a moment, try to picture for yourself, Christ on the cross. Let your imagination figure the motley crew assembled around the hill of Calvary. Lift now your eyes and see three crosses put upon that rising knoll. See in the center the thorn-crowned brow of Christ. Do you see the hands that have always been full of blessing nailed fast to that accursed wood? Do you see his dear face more marred than any other man? Do you see it now as his head bows upon his chest in the extreme agonies of death? He was a real man, remember? And it was a real cross. Do you think of these things as figments and fantasies and romances? There was such a being and he died as I describe it. Let your imagination picture him and then sit still for a moment and think over this thought. The blood of that man whom I now behold dying in agony must be my redemption. And if I would be saved, I must put my only trust in what he suffered there for me. You say, Patrick, you don't know how guilty I am. You don't know all the things that I've done. And I would say, I don't. But I know that there is plenty of room at the cross. I know that there is no sin. The scriptures say there is no sin other than the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit that cannot be forgiven you. And if you are here saying, I want to be forgiven, but I don't think I can be, you haven't committed the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. You can be forgiven. Simply come before Jesus and say, I'm guilty. God, you know I'm guilty. I deserve the punishment for my sins. I deserve the wrath that you received, you took my blame. You took my sin. It's often said that there were two thieves on that hill and Jesus is in the center. 
Brothers and sisters, there were three thieves crucified that day. And the one in the middle took something that didn't belong to him. He took my sin. He did it because he loves me. My friends, Jesus Christ loves you. He doesn't go back and change your past, but he redeems it for all eternity. And he doesn't judge you by your actions. Praise the Lord. Jesus will not judge you. If you will cling to him, if you have already done this, then this is true of you. And if you would but do this today, this can be true of you. Jesus will not judge you by your actions. He will judge you by his actions. And he'll give you his perfect righteousness, taking all of your sin and saying, as far as the east is from the west, to the bottom of the ocean floor, I will remember your sins no more. That is why we gather. That is why it is a good Friday. And that is why on the cross, Jesus cried out, it's finished, it's paid in full. Everything that I came to accomplish, I did. I accomplished it all. And that's why every time we gather to celebrate the Lord's Supper, that's what we remind ourselves of. We are reminding one another of the cross of our Savior who loved us and gave himself for us so that we would not be judged by our actions, but that Jesus Christ's actions would live through us. So brothers and sisters, I want to ask you to glory in the gospel. And if you're here this evening and you don't know if your sins truly have been paid for, maybe you would say, I don't know if it's possible. You don't know what I've done. I, I don't know if I can give up my life to Christ. If you have questions, we would love to answer those for you. But right now, I, I, want, to, I want to just have us sit and listen to a song and just meditate on the words of this song and really ask the question, is it finished for you? Has it been accomplished for you? It is finished, but have you received accepted, bowed the knee, have you embraced Christ as your Savior, King, Master, and Friend? If not, then you are still trying to appease God or just saying, I don't think he exists. And that won't work. If you're trying to appease God by your own good works, it will not work. You need his righteousness. And so I'm going to ask the men if they would come and pass the bread during this song. I want you to listen as they do. And I want you to hold on to the bread as a reminder that it truly has been finished. And meditate in your heart and then we will partake together.